All right. Well, we've been studying in 1 Timothy. Please turn there to chapter 5 with me. 1 Timothy chapter 5. The inescapable truth of accountability. Last week, we touched on a couple of these verses. Didn't have time to really get into them. So we're going to take a running start into the next part of our text here. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Against an elder, an elder here would be someone in authority in the local church, a pastor or somebody, one of the other elders, those who rule, who manage the church, the leadership, spiritual leadership. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Now, what is that talking about? Preachers do bad things. But you don't just go on a whim, on a rumor. There has to be proof that they've done something wrong, okay? You don't say, well, I'm going to try to get rid of our pastor because he didn't take my advice or he didn't take my suggestion on what color carpet we should get next in the church. And so we're going to get a campaign to see if we can get rid of this guy. Okay, now that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about sin, Somebody who's in leadership who does something that they're not supposed to do, and it's a serious thing, and they're found out about it, and if that is the case, then you don't listen to one person who comes to leadership and says, hey, um, so-and-so, I think they're doing this or that. No, you have to have two or three witnesses to confirm that. Otherwise, it's just gossip. Them, that sin. In other words, those who are guilty of it. They do something wrong. Let's say a, a pastor is involved in uh, immorality immoral behavior or adultery or something like that. That's what we're talking about. Serious things or stealing money or doing whatever. You understand in light of where we've been already in First Timothy, them that sin, in other words, they're actually guilty of it, rebuke before all. Of course, that is after a time of investigating it, making sure that you have the facts. Them that sin, rebuke before all that others also may fear. In other words, what that does is it lets people know, hey, you know what? This church is serious about standing on Scripture. Hold that thought. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Now, what is this talking about? There's an overarching principle here, and here's where this is going to, folks. This is speaking of having an unwavering loyalty to the Word of God. An unwavering loyalty to the Word of God. Now listen, if a church has an unwavering loyalty to the Word of God, that may hinder it from ever becoming maybe a mega church or this or that, but it will have the pleasure of God and the blessing of God on it. Why? because it's being true to him. You see, it's easy. Now, we could have a megachurch here. All I'd have to do is compromise in certain areas of our church are the way we teach. We're very, we try to be very clear, very straightforward, okay? Preaching God's word with love, yet at the same time, boldness. Telling it like it is. Not only saying this is what it says, but what it's saying, this over here is, this is not what it's saying. So this is what it's saying, and when we say that, this is not what we're saying over here. Do you see what I'm saying? That really, really clarifies things. Now, that can be rough, 
And so you'll get more people who disagree with you, but I believe it's more important to be clear and plain with Scripture than it is to speak in vague terms just to where you can get lots more people coming out the church. And so we have to have this loyalty to the Scriptures. We can't compromise it. We can't say, well, you know what? We're going to revisit this issue of homosexual marriage. No, we're not. God has spoken and he doesn't stutter. Or we're going to revisit this issue of women preachers. And all. No, we're not going to revisit that. God has spoken. He doesn't stutter. Well, I don't know about if God really, you know, this issue of God being the creator of everything and all that. I mean, there's got to be someplace. I mean, the secular scientists, they have all the evidence of evolution. I've seen it in their charts. I mean, everybody knows it started with the ooze in the Nile River that was struck by lightning. Of course, no one knows where the Nile River came from or where anything came from because it came from a black hole and there wasn't anything that became everything. You know, it started there and there was a lizard and then the lizard got, you know, or snake and then the the snake got legs and then it got up and then it got a little bit more upright. And before you know it, then there we were, there was the caveman, and there was Fred Flintstone, and there was all these different things. By the way, you know, the Flintstones is more Christian than your science books. Did you know that? The Flintstones is more biblically accurate than the science books today, because the Flintstones have human beings and dinosaurs living at the same time. Remember Dino? Remember Barney? Hold back. Nobody say yabba dabba do or anything like that, okay? Here's the point, folks. We're not revisiting the issue of creation because it's settled. If you believe Genesis 1-1, then all the rest falls in line. And if you don't believe Genesis 1-1, you've got problems. So we're not going to revisit anything, okay? I got off track, but let's move on. This speaks of having an unwavering loyalty to the word of God. We should not be quick to react in the wrong way and see someone guilty of something before the truth is known. But if they are guilty, we must side with scripture with the right attitude and the right actions. There are no exceptions or people who are above the standards and the truths of the Lord and his word. No one is above that, including me, including me. No one is above it. We always act in grace. We always act in truth, but we do stand on the word of God. That is the standard. Now, what I've just said, you know, I could, you know, many people will say, yeah, that's where we stand. Amen. Amen to that. We all amen this truth, but when it comes to taking a stand, when even friends or family or co-laborers in Christ go astray and we have to take a stand with them or it costs us a friendship, that can be challenging, but it is necessary. Why? Because God's word must stand. Folks, that is what we have to do as the body of Christ and as a local church is to speak the truth in love and stand on the scriptures. Things that are priority, okay, or things that are clearly spelled out in scripture, that is the faith that we are to contend for. Things that aren't spelled out in scripture that are matters of choice or opinion or those kind of things, there can be more freedom in that. But nevertheless, we must stand on the truth. To put it another way, here we go. Everyone is accountable. 
Everyone is accountable. No one is above it, including the pastor and the elders. And so that leads us, I know I've already touched on it, but that leads us to, let me just spell it out, the accountability of leadership, the accountability of leadership. Verse 21, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partakers of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. What a statement that is. What a statement. Keep thyself pure. This probably refers to a premature ordination or giving a position of leadership to somebody who has not been proven yet, but churches wanting to get people in position or, and this goes on, folks, this goes on, churches getting somebody of influence and saying, we've got to get this person on the board in a place of leadership because they will make our church look more important to the world. So we want them on our board. Do you see what I'm saying? It happens all the time. It is wrong, wrong, wrong. The only thing that matters really is what God thinks. Because that is the ultimate accountability. Notice, neither be partaker of other men's sins. If you do not know the background and the character of the individual you are honoring, and it is found out that they are in sin, then it is like you have approved of that person's sin. And then to undo that, which, you know what, if you're in a mess and you need to undo it, undo it. But wouldn't it have been better to be more prudent on the front end and not get into the mess to begin with. You ever done that, by the way? You're going for a walk, maybe a walk in the field or whatever, and you're, you're walking and you're going, all that, and then all of a sudden you look down and you realize you're in a whole area of mud. And it's all over your shoes and it's all over your pants, and you're right in the middle of it. You might say, I need to get out of here. Well, guess what? Whatever amount of mud you got on you, you're going to get that much more on you again trying to get out. Wouldn't it have been easier just to keep an eye and not get in that situation to begin with? Things can get messy, right? 1 Timothy 5.23, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Now this is an interesting verse, verse 23 It is amazing to me that people who want to drink alcohol use this verse to support social drinking. It's like, you may be able to read, but you don't read with comprehension. That's not what the verse is talking about. Use it for social drinking. Let me give you some facts about this. First, Paul had to tell Timothy to drink it. He had to tell him to drink it. This fact at least hints to the idea that Timothy did not touch the stuff. Because Paul had to tell him, no, you need to do this for your health. Otherwise, why would Paul have to tell him to drink it if he was already doing it? He wasn't already doing it, but it was for medicinal purposes. We know this from 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, church leadership, Paul gave the qualifications and he talked about elders or pastors or both. And he said, not given to wine, 1 Timothy 3, 3. Proverbs 20, verse 1, it says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Wine is a mocker. In what way? It mocks God, it mocks his word, and it mocks the drinker. It mocks the drinker. It says, ha ha, you don't know what you're getting into. Wait till I have you in bondage. Wait till you're addicted to this. Then we'll see how much you enjoy it. 
Years ago, my wife and I were driving around town and we saw a beer truck and it had on the back of that beer truck, say no to drugs. Do you believe it? There's only one word for that. I know people don't like me using it. It's stupid. That's stupid. Say no to drugs. You're driving a truck of drugs. Do you get it? Proverbs 23, 31. Look not upon the wine when it is red, when it gives its color in the cup, when it moves itself aright. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. It's talking about alcoholic. Not touch talking about grape juice. Years ago, I was talking to a doctor, and he was talking about healthy heart and this and that. He says, well, you know, you'd be good for your health if you drank wine. He's a Christian. And uh, I just looked at him. I'm usually not this way with people I respect. I looked at him, and I said, come on. You know better than that. It's not the alcohol. It's the grape juice. That's where the benefits are. It's not the alcohol. You just... Like that, we went on with the visit. Which leads us to our next point. It was for medicinal purposes, often infirmities. Timothy, no doubt, had stomach problems that were possibly caused by water supply, possibly in certain parts of the world. You know, even today, folks in certain parts of the world, what do they say? Don't drink the water, right? Don't drink the water because the water is polluted. And so here... I think the issue was that Paul was saying, listen, you've got a stomach ailment. This will help. Drink a little wine. Okay, this will help solve that. He's not saying go down and buy a bunch of stuff to where you can party with it. Not only that, but another point in this passage, there is no injunction here for social drinking or pleasure, just health, just health. Now, moving on, verses 24 and 25, we see two sides to the issue of sin and the exposing of one's character. Now, these verses, I think verses 24 and 25 seem to go back to verses 21 and 22 in the selection of leadership, but the principle is far more reaching than that. This is an issue of character. First, we're going to look at the negative side in verse 24. It says, some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. In other words, however a person lives is going to be made known sooner or later. It will catch up to them. You might say, what if it doesn't in this life? It will in the next life. The results of sin always catches up with the person. Some people are so wicked that their sin is made known while they live. It does catch up with them. It is evident. Others, it catches up with them later and it exposes them. Folks, there's a law in scripture. It's called the law of sowing and reaping. And this is true. Not only that, but in Numbers uh, chapter 32, verse 23, it gives the statement at the end of the verse. It says, be sure your sin will find you out. God's in charge of that. God is watching. If you're a believer, God is watching you. If you're an unbeliever, God is watching you. He knows what you're doing. He knows what we're thinking. It is a much better way to live your life just submitted to the principles of God's word and walking in the light as he is in the light, instead of trying to go about it and hiding things. You know, some of the most miserable people in the world are liars and deceitful people. Do you know why? They have to remember. 
the last time they talked about it and lied. They have to try to remember what they said to where they can keep covering it up, to where they can keep hiding it. That gets more and more difficult as time goes on. Wouldn't it just be better to be honest and do what's right? That way you don't have to think about the past. That's the negative side, but there is a positive side. Verse 25, likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid, which leads us to a very practical and relevant issue. We've been talking about the accountability of leadership here, and there is an accountability. But secondly, there's the accountability of all of us. You know, there are people who uh, do this. I'm aware of this. I, I don't make an issue of it, but I'm aware of this. There are people, you know, we do have church membership at our church, but we never hound people to become members of the church because we see membership as a step of commitment. That person saying, I believe like the church does. I'm behind the church 100%. I'm with the church. I want to be part of the team. I want to get plugged in. I want to be used through the local church ministry to be a blessing and to fulfill God's will. And those people, we say, hey, you're in agreement with us. You're with us. Come on board. We'd love to have you as members. But we don't, we don't hound people with that. Because there's commitments. You have to commit to certain things to be a member of the church. And none of it is unbiblical. It's all very clearly, it's all based on scripture. But I know over time, there are people who will never become members. And you know why they won't become members? Because they don't want to be accountable. They figure if I'm not a member, I don't have to be accountable. I don't have to do the things that the church talks about. I can just live my life and do whatever I want to do. Well, if that's the way you want to live your life, you can do that. But you know what you're doing? You're robbing yourself of the blessings of being on board. You're robbing yourself of jumping in with both feet. Folks, listen, in the Bible, you will not find God looking with favor on what I call Christians at large. It's not talking about overweight people. Otherwise, I guess I'd be included in that. But what it's talking about are Christians who just they're not connected to anything. They just, they just got their own flavor of Christianity out there. They're just floating, floating around. And you know what? They may like doing that, but they're losing out of the intimacy and the joy and weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice and knowing your brothers and sisters in the local church and being a blessing. Folks, if you separate yourself from that, you're only robbing yourself of the blessings that are there. The teamwork, the camaraderie, and all those things that are part of local church ministry. No pressure. I'm just saying, this is the way it is. The accountability of all of us. First, for the believer. Turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. Now, we won't spend a huge amount of time on the details of this. More of it when we get to our series on judgments, the seven judgments of God. But Romans chapter 14, and I know we have lots of folks who watch, and you know, whenever I talk about this stuff, they say, oh, I wish I could be a part. I don't have a church in my area, a sound church. And my heart goes out to people like that. It really does. I got an, an, a handwritten letter this last week from a man in Mississippi who watches us. He evidently pays very close attention because somewhere along the line, maybe it was around before the fall party or whatever, I must have said something about candy bars. 
So uh, jokingly, okay, I'll say things like, bring your candy, you know, your, your bags of candy, and you put them in my office. And, and, and that's a joke, and no one's taken me up on it, and thank you, and please don't. <laughs> it's the last thing I need. Although there are some candies that are more biblical than others. <laughs> Peter, Paul, Almond Joy. <laughs> Do you remember? I don't know if it's Peter, Paul, not Mary. She's not, doesn't have anything to do with it. But here's the point. This man writes, and he, he sent me. Usually when, when somebody writes a church and a check comes in that letter, I just turn it over to the church, okay? Because that's usually, I think that's usually what they mean for it. But he was very specific. This check is for you. And he said, he said maybe use it to... I mean, it wasn't a giant check or anything, but it's so appreciative, so thoughtful of the man. He said, just use it to buy a few candy bars. That's what he said. (laughs) Sweet guy. Let me tell you, folks, he went on and on on how much he appreciated our ministry. And he also said, he said, be sure to tell the people who get this up on the internet how much we appreciate it. So those of you who are part of the production, the recording, and all of it, Thank you so much, okay? You're making such an impact in the lives of people. But a handwritten letter, two pages long, written by this man, okay? What a blessing. What a blessing that is. Romans 14, verse 10, it says, But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is written to Christians. Every Christian will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. The issue at the judgment seat of Christ is not whether you're going to heaven and hell. It takes place in heaven. It's not punishment. Your punishment was taken care of on Calvary. It doesn't mean God will not chasten you in this life. But there is no such thing as purgatory. But there is an accountability. We are going to give an account, a verbal answer to God for how we lived our lives since we trusted Christ. This is for believers. For we shall all stand at the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in verse 10 It says this, for we, again, this is talking to Christians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Again, I'm not going to go into all the details of these things. We'll cover it more in detail in the future. But folks, the point is this. There is the accountability of every one of us. Every one of us one day will give an account to God. And by the way, whether you're saved or lost, you are going to give an account to God for your life. So we need to be thinking about, you know, when all is said and done, see, we get stuck in the mud of the present is what happens. We get stuck in the mud of the present. We care more about what other people think, how other people will respond, what I might lose, what I might be inconvenienced with, maybe some embarrassment I may go through, forgetting that ultimately we will one day be face to face with our Savior himself and are going to answer to him. And that is the final judgment. Not what people think. What does he think? 
What does he think of me? That's what matters most. And is there anybody who's done more for me and you than Jesus Christ? No, no. Back to 1 Timothy 5 in verse 25 again. It says, Likewise also the good works of some are manifest, made known beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. You live your life for Christ. Maybe no one will notice what you do. Maybe you're a behind-the-scenes kind of person. And by the way, we've got lots of those here at Northland. And every one of you is appreciated. Every single one of you. Some things nobody sees. Other things will be made known. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Okay? The impact we can have. Those who are truly living for the Lord will also be known in time, whether in this life or down the road. All right? Folks, we reap what we sow, whether positively or negatively. It's inescapable. The law of sowing and reaping is just as real as the law of gravity. You can deny the law of gravity. You can go downtown to where Mark works at the big Wells Fargo building. Now, because he's in the banking business, don't think he's loaded with money. Doesn't work that way. Right, Mark? Nope. But you could go and you could get on top of that building and you can say, I just do not believe in the law of gravity. I do not believe it. Watch. And you jump off that building. And you may not believe it, but you will believe it after you're dead. Because folks, you're going to be mashed potatoes in just a short period of time. It's a law. The law of gravity is created by God and he's not going to change it because we disagree. The law of sowing and reaping is created by God, and he's not going to change it because we disagree. It's reality. You know, that is one of the greatest motivations in a Christian life is the law of sowing and reaping. It's a common sense motivation. You look at it, okay, God's word says if I go in that direction and I go against his word and I rebel and I sow seeds of wickedness and sin, that it's going to come back on me. Common sense says, "Mm, I don't want a miserable life. I want a blessed life. God says, okay, then go with me. Do it according to my word. Sow good seed. Live for me. Live according to scripture. You'll get the blessings of that in this life and also the next. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13. Every man's work, this is when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, every man's work shall be made manifest, made known. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. Do you see that? It'll be made manifest, the day shall declare it. That's exactly what Timothy was saying. It's going to be made known. The way we live will be made known. We are accountable to God. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Further down in the same passage, chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart, even motives. And then shall every man have praise for God. Now that's for the believer. We've been talking about for the believer here so far. 
But then there's that for the unbeliever. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. There's an accountability. Revelation chapter 20. The wicked of this world. Believer, don't don't ever forget this. The wicked of this world who never trust in Christ will have to face him as their eternal judge. He will hold them accountable for how they have mocked him, how they have rejected him, how they rejected his word, how they persecuted Christians, how they preached false doctrine. You name it. How they may have gone to the grave saying, I don't believe there's God. There is no God. He's a grotesque idea. I reject the idea of God. There. There what? You haven't done away with him. You've just gotten further from him. You will give an account to him one day. How much better to investigate the truths of Christianity, which if you're an atheist, you haven't. Not really. Not with an open mind, because anybody with an open mind, that would be an agnostic. An agnostic is simply agnoeo, the word, the Greek word, it means without knowledge, lacking knowledge. Somebody without knowledge, there's knowledge to be had, and that knowledge will lead you to the foot of the cross, and you will see your need taken care of by the living God, the creator of all, who is also the savior of the world. And he will save you by your grace, not because you deserve it or do anything, simply because you believe he made the payment for your sin. And he will keep you saved for all eternity. And you become a child of God and you are accepted in Christ. How much better of of an eternity you will face if you're a believer. But if you are an unbeliever, there is nothing but total agony and misery in your future. Revelation 20, verse 11, I saw the great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled, and there was found no place for them. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, these are unbelievers here, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and another book, notice plural and then singular, the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. Now there are people who see that and say, wait a minute, I thought we're not saved by works. I thought we're saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. That's true. These people rejected that. They said, no, I will be accountable for my own actions and sins. I will take care of them. Well, you don't want to do that. You should accept the payment Jesus made so you don't have to make the payment for your sin. But you notice they were judged every man, uh, or excuse me, according to their works in verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is the last death, and it is forever. We cannot even fathom or comprehend the idea of everlasting agony. By the way, you know what's gaining steam now? Quote-unquote Bible-believing churches saying that hell is not forever. It's not forever now. I heard a guy on on, uh, 
Janet Parshall's program a couple weeks ago. He believes in annihilation. That's a Jehovah's Witness doctrine. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, folks. If there's forever smoke, there's forever fire. The Bible says there's no rest day nor night in hell. I don't say that with pleasure. I say it as a pastor who is warning. If you're hearing this message and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, He is the only way to heaven. I don't even like saying the word hell. But this is the destiny of the lost. And it doesn't have to be. They're judged according to their works. And it has to do with what will their punishment be for all eternity in hell. Because the Bible, Jesus talked about there being a greater condemnation. So there's condemnation and then there's a greater condemnation. That to me points to degrees. I could be wrong, but I don't believe I am. Let's end on a positive note, shall we? Turn to 1 John chapter 5. I love this passage. I saw this the first night I got saved, or the night I got saved. 1 John 5 verse 11 says this, and this is the record, here you go, that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son, verse 12. I know I say this at times, but it's significant. If you've never heard this before, verse 12, God could not make it simpler. Every word in verse 12 is one syllable. No highfalutin talk. Look at it. He that hath the son hath life. And he that hath not the son of God hath not life. What's the key to heaven? Do you have the Son? Have you put your faith in Him as your Savior? If you have, you have eternal life. That's what it's saying. Verse 13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Man, I saw that. My world stood still when I saw that. You can know. I was always taught you can't know you're going to heaven. You may know that you have eternal life, that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Friend, if you happen to be here today or watching over the internet, please listen carefully to what I've got to say. There is nothing you could ever learn in your entire life more important than what I'm going to share with you right now. Let me explain to you how it was explained to me. If I could let this hand represent you and me going to let this wallet represent our sin. Here we are. We are all sinners, all of us, including me. Yet the Bible says God loves us. How do I know that? For God so loved the world. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We are sinners, yet God loves us. He hates our sin. Our sin separates us from him. Listen, you cannot get into heaven this way. Can't get there with your sin. The sin has to be gone because heaven is a perfect place. No sin there. That's why there's no sorrow, sickness. That's why there's joy. That's why there's happiness. There's peace. All the wonders that are are coming. But that's for the believer. See, sin separates us from God. To get to heaven, we have to have a payment for our sin. God says if we do it, we would have to die and spend forever separated from God in hell. God says, I don't want that for you. Now, religion says, oh, I think Jesus is important, but you know what? I think I have to do works 
like we just read in Revelation. I think I have to do works to get rid of my sin. I have to go to church, be baptized, try to be a good person. All those things. Well, they may be good things, folks, but they don't pay for sin. Death is the only payment. A death payment has to be made. Either you'll do it and spend forever separated from God, or let someone else do it for you. I said, what's that about? That's what Jesus Christ is all about. Because there's nothing we could do to save ourselves. Jesus came into the world. God the Son entered the human race, the sinless Son of God. And when he died on the cross, he died there to take our sin upon himself to make the payment for us so that we don't have to. He took that sin and he paid it all when he died. He was buried and he rose from the grave. He has paid for all your sin. You don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven. All he's asking you to do is believe in him that he did that for you. The moment you believe in Christ, the payment he made is good on your behalf. If you say, no, I can't accept that. That's too easy. Then you're saying, I will be responsible for my sin. If you die in this condition, you'll be lost forever. No second chances. You've heard it today, how you can be forgiven, how you can have a home in heaven. Simply believe. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Jesus, his name means God who is our Savior. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. When you believe, you're forgiven. How much? All of it. Not only what you've done, but what you're going to do to the day you die. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. If you've never trusted Christ, would you do it today? It's the best news in all the world. We are accountable, every one of us. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.